welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. I'm your host, Charlie Andrews, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Barrett, and we'll be talking about flare management in inflammatory bowel disease. Kevin is a GP in Watford. He's also the medical director for Central London Community Healthcare NHS Trust. He's a current committee member of the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology, and he was the chair between 2017 and 2021. In addition, he's been a clinical champion for inflammatory bowel disease for the Royal College of General Practitioners and Crohn's and Colitis UK between 2017 and 2020. So, Kevin, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Charlie. It's great to have you here. We've, we've obviously worked together quite a lot with the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology, and you've got a wealth of knowledge around inflammatory bowel disease. So, so really pleased to have you on the podcast. Um, I'm going to start off by asking you sort of quite a big question. So why is it important that GPs have a good understanding of the management of inflammatory bowel disease and flare management in particular? Yeah, this is a, a question that came up when we started the Spotlight Project back, uh, when we started planning planning it back in 2016, um, and the project went live in 2017. We, we asked uh, lots and lots of GPs and GP trainees and other healthcare professionals what the issues um, that they, they, were, they were facing. And apart from diagnosis, then flare management came up pretty high on, on their list of priorities. Um, we know that lots and lots of patients that um, have IBD are managed very, very well, either by their secondary care team or tertiary care team or by primary care. But there's a big group of people in the middle who don't often have flares or might move around a bit um, or just generally don't have that kind of continuity of care and, and that relationship with um, with a particular IBD team. Um, and they often come to see their GP. And lots and lots of GPs are absolutely fantastic and brilliant at managing the, their IBD, um, but some don't have the expertise or confidence in, in that area. Um, and we know that there are there's lots of evidence around um, about um, prednisolone steroid prescribing in primary care uh, in patients with IBD, and lots and lots of them are given inappropriate doses. I'm not saying they're wrong doses, but they they may be inappropriate, either too little, too much, too short, too long. Um, and we know that, that patients that have that are given those those less appropriate courses um, of prednisolone probably do slightly worse in terms of outcomes. Um, so the aim the aim of the of the of the, um, the spotlight project and the flare cards or the flare pathways that came out of that uh, was to try and address some of that. Now, projects um, that, that are coming out of the secondary care and generally the IBD standards mean that more and more patients are coming out with their own individualized care plan for their IBD management. And that should include what to do in the case for flare. But all these things take a long, long time. And again, lots of patients don't have that regular contact with their IBD, uh, IBD team. Um, so these flare pathways are really designed to be a temporary measure, although temporary may, be, may go on for decades, um, to actually help help primary care in particular manage, manage their patients who might come to them thinking they might have a flare. I'm going to come back to the flare pathways uh, a little bit later on in this podcast, but just before we move into the sort of the management and the meat of this of this uh, episode, how common are flares in inflammatory bowel disease? The evidence is quite difficult for that. So the data we, we got from the Spotlight Project shows that about half of patients with IBD have some kind of flare at least once a year. Now, in reality, that's obviously skewed because lots of patients have, have, have lots of flares and lots of patients will have very few flares. But the a typical sort of, you know, maybe every couple of years, you might expect a small flare. 
Um, it depends upon the disease, how bad it is, the severity of it, what treatment they're on, the compliance with treatment, um, and trying to make trying to actually make sure that patients, particularly the ones that we see in primary care who might be on mesalazine treatment, actually do maintain that compliance. I think that's really important to try and reduce that from happening. So that's the kind of numbers are quite fairly big numbers generally. It is a lot. And what sort of impact on quality of life does inflammatory bowel disease and flares of inflammatory bowel disease have on patients? Do we have any information around that? Um, there's lots of quality data around that, about the impact on work and schooling, education, um, education achievement, um, all of those sorts of things in, in, um, in particular. But also we, we hear lots of anecdotes from patients about the impact it has on relationships, dating, sex lives, all those things as well. Um, there's lots and lots of work going on with the uh, the, the um, invisible disease projects. So if you go into supermarkets, airports, those sorts of things, you see on the toilet door um, lots of uh, invisible illness signs to try and encourage people to be, to be able to access um, disabled toilets, for example, even if they don't have a, a physical, uh, very obvious external physical disability. Um, so Crohn's Class UK have been involved in, in some of that work too. Um, but yeah, it is it is one of those really difficult things. I mean, again, even if it's not a an inflammatory flare, if it's a functional flare of their disease, we know the impacts, the the, the pain, bloating, discomfort, um, the need to access the toilet. That, that's that's just it's really horrible. Um, the inflammatory bit in particular. Uh, I mean, one of the questions I always ask patients when when they come to me um with with a change in bowel habit is what happens at night time so we know that functional diseases IBD, ibs for example generally patients don't get up at, in the middle of the night to go to the toilet whereas with the the physical functional of uh, physical um, inflammatory conditions um, ibd colorectal cancer pre-malignant polyps those sorts of things um quite often patients are woken in the night when they need to go to the toilet and, and if they don't they may end up having having accidents so so that is a key discriminator when it comes to the diagnosis but it's also a useful discriminator when it comes to, to to differentiate between inflammatory versus functional flares so yeah, a huge impact on people's lives that brings me nicely on to the next question that i wanted to ask you about which was how do we how should we approach the consultation with a patient who's got ibd and thinks that they might be flaring what sort of symptoms are we looking for and i know that you've already mentioned a couple there what sort of tests would you recommend to help guide our management as well yeah it comes back to that the classic thing about take a good history from the patient ask about when did it start what the symptoms have they got are the symptoms part of the normal envelope of symptoms um, and then you ask you know, some more specific questions, blood in stool, frequency of going to the toilet. So more than six times per day is, is kind of a, a threshold we look for. Fever, um, those typical symptoms. Nocturnal symptoms, again, is really important. Um, it's also to, to important to take a, a, a lifestyle history. So diet, stress, travel, um, all those sorts of things too. Because again, we know that patients with IBD, they're subject to, to the general life stress that might set off their functional IBS type symptoms that we get as well. And, um, you know, might be lucky enough to go abroad and pick up an exotic illness from somewhere as well. So um, as well as food poisoning, for example. So you've got to think about all those sorts of things as well. Um, so that's been my, my, my first thing. And again, nocturnal symptoms, obviously part of that. Um, after that, again, where possible, I, it's always good to see patients face to face. I know that's not always possible these days. We're doing a lot more remote consultations with videos and, tele and telephone calls and um, e-consultations. But actually, if you can, it's worth actually having a look at the patient. Um, lots of patients with IBD are used to a certain level of discomfort, pain, bloating, and they tend to adapt and, and become used to that. Um, and then patients can become quite unwell quite quickly. Um, 
so patients have symptoms that come the progress on for a long time it's difficult to kind of choose what point actually have they tipped into becoming acutely unwell and at risk of a an acute abdomen acute kidney injury sepsis those sorts of things um, and sometimes it can be quite difficult to choose the point because some some patients will downplay that and say well actually you know i've managed it if things have been getting gradually worse for a few weeks i'm still able to go to work and uh, and those sorts of things and they, it can become quite difficult sometimes with those ones other patients it's much more obvious they go downhill within a few days and it's, it's very clear but then again seeing that patient checking the temperature blood pressure pulse having a look at abdomen um, those classic things we look for from acute abdomen really important to do that um, so yeah that's my, my, my first approach before we move on to on to next steps and um, just before we talk a bit about sort of what tests you might request and do for your patient you mentioned there about symptomatic flare and inflammatory flare could we just nail that down what do you mean by that so so again a lot of patients probably again 50 percent ish that kind of figure with ibd inflammatory bowel disease also have an, have a, a functional ibs type pattern with their symptoms as well um, where they still get um the, they might get dietary intolerances um some patients can't tolerate fiber um, dairy products gluten those those sorts of foods including the, the high fodmap foods um and um, so, so again, the, the bloating and discomfort and you know, increased bowel frequency, for example, although some people do get constipation with it, um, that absolutely can, can happen. And they can mimic an overlap and be almost identical to the, to the inflammatory symptoms that you get. Patients with, with disease at the, the far end of the gut, so the, the sort of the, the left-sided disease and rectal disease um, and ulcerative colitis, for example, they, they're much more likely to get blood in their stools, for example, much more blood and mucus perhaps than patients with um, more of a small bowel or, or generalized bowel thing that you might see in, um, in Crohn's disease, for example. Um, patients with very upper bowel disease, so the stomach and esophageal disease, that that's, they're, they can be very, very difficult to, um, to, to differentiate. But the patients with, with, with um, generalized lower GI disease, uh, it, it can be absolutely tricky. Um, and you might get people who actually get both at the same time. They have a, an inflammatory flare um, and then that exacerbates their functional symptoms as well. So it's, it's a real minefield and it's really difficult in some patients. Some it's really obvious. They just say, actually, this doesn't feel like inflammatory flare to me because they've lived the disease. They know what's going on with it. Um, whereas others are quite new or, or something changes. It's just difficult. Every patient's dif different in this situation. And that's, that's the key with this. There's no, you can't easily pigeonhole patients and, put them into a uh, in one particular one particular pattern um i mean and again if you look at the the data around um disease progression with inflammatory bowel disease um generally over lifetimes people have they'll, they'll go through ups and downs that they'll have inflammatory flares um that progress they'll go through cycles of it some more regular than others um i know that my my particular um i have probably indeterminate IBD. It hasn't really fallen down into one or the other after 15 odd years of being diagnosed. Um, but I know that my symptoms and, and, and probably my calprotectin levels probably do, do vary on a six month cycle. Um, so that's just how it works out for me. Other people have a, a more rapid um, cycle and other people a little bit longer than that. But you know that disease under, underlying that is generally progressing um, throughout time and generally getting worse as, as, as life goes on. Um, so yeah, it can, it's it's really difficult, and it's certainly. I mean, it's 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 hard enough for secondary care with uh, all the easy access to investigations and things that they've got. But for us in primary care, it's so much harder. 
It is, yeah, and and you've kind of highlighted why that really careful history taking is so important. Seeing the patients that you can assess them and find out, you know, which ones are actually really quite poorly um, and need to be escalated quite quickly. Are there any tests that you would recommend doing in primary care to help us guide our, our management here? Yeah, in, in terms of um, sort of basic investigations, our, our straightforward blood tests are the ones we always go for. We can generally get full blood counts and inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP back fairly quickly within 24 hours, usually these days. And again, with uh, with using these, just look for uh, um, AKI. Um, some of us are lucky enough to have access to, to calprotectin and get, can get the results back fairly quickly. Um, again, um, it's, sometimes it can take a couple of weeks. And again, depending on the patient's age, we might be limited in what we can do. So quite a lot of areas restrict that to the, um, the, the that sort of in-between age, between 18 and 40. That's, that's certainly the case in my area. Um, so again, if we have got the luxury of that, then that's great. And again, some areas have got you know near patient testing kits where they can actually just do a result, do a test there and then get a result back. But again, I think they're few and far between um, in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, just start, start with the basics. And calprotectin, just just to just for our audience, can you give us a sort of a one-liner about what calprotectin is and uh, and the best way to use it in flares? Yeah, um, I mean calprotectin is, is a protein that's released um, in the presence of inflammation, so it's secreted into all sorts of different bodily fluids um, in inflammation. So um, in IBD in particular, it's, it's present in in stool in limb. So we do we test fecal calprotectin levels, um, which is a straightforward stool test. It goes off in the standard bottle, goes off the lab, um, and they analyze it and get the results back. Um, its levels can go up in all sorts of different things. So anything that irritates and aggravates the gut can do it. So it, its levels can go up in colorectal cancer. Um, it can go up with infections. Um, it, levels can be increased by non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, so those are the sorts of sorts of cautions about it as well. Obviously, patients who've got very upper GI disease, um, they may not actually give a calprotectin response that's, that's detectable in, in feces. So again, need to be a little bit careful of those patients with very, very upper GI disease. Um, but it's on the whole, if the calprotectin is raised, it's not a diagnosis in itself. But again, it can be used just to kind of point towards something inflammatory or something else going on that, that needs looking at. Great. Thanks, Kevin. So what would our initial management be next? So so what initial management would you advise for the patient who's experiencing a flare of their IBD? Perhaps we could split that up into management of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's? Yeah, that's that's a good way. We, we certainly, when we started developing the flare pathways, we tried, my, my original dream was to have one unified pathway for everything. Uh, but uh, life isn't that simple. And so we ended up splitting into UC versus Crohn's. Um, ulcerative colitis on the whole is can be more straightforward to manage. Again, always exceptions to that. Um, uh, and we'll come on to Crohn's in a minute. But, but with ulcerative colitis, I think the key is to actually establish, is it actually a, an inflammatory flare, first of all, by, by doing those bloods? If you're fairly confident it is, you don't necessarily have to wait for the results to come back. Um, you can start the treatments because lots of treatments we give in primary care. So then salazines, for example, if a patient's on that, they're generally safe drugs and we can increase doses fairly confidently um, before we know what's going on. If it turns out not to be an inflammatory flare, you won't have done any harm to that patient on the whole. Um, I think the key thing to do is, is to say, does the patient have a, 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 a care plan in place? Do they, you know, have they got a very clear plan about what to do in case of having a flare? If they do, follow that straightforward, no problems. Um, if you've got easy, quick access to the, the inflammatory bowel disease local team, um, either by phone call or email, some, some services are brilliant and will respond fairly quickly. Most are struggling and with, with capacity as, as the whole NHS is, and it can take a week or two to get the result back. 
Um, sometimes we can use um, apps and phone lines to get access from gastroenterologists, so we can use that as well if we want to. But if we're stuck, so you know, it's it's in the evening, we're, we're doing a late night surgery, and, and the patient's there, and you, you don't know what to do for that patient. I think the thing to do is just is to look at the treatment they're already on and say, actually, are they on the maximum dose of, of that? So a mesalazine, uh, one of those five ASA drugs, increase it to the maximum dose. That's the first thing to do. Um, or, or certainly increase the dose um, as, as much as the patient will tolerate that. The guidance about ulcerative colitis has changed um, in the last couple of years. Um, so on the whole, it used to be separated out into topical therapies, so rectal therapies versus oral therapies, whereas now for almost every patient, except for those who've got very, very, very distal disease, you actually do both at the same time. So you'd look at the topical treatments of the suppositories, foams, enemas, um, and again, be guided by what they've had before, because they, they, it depends upon where the disease is within within the rectum, how far up it is, because all of those treatments will get dif different uh, a different distance um, from the anus up. Um, and then also look at the oral treatments as well, because that top and tail approach is is correct for almost every patient. Um, so again, ma maximise the oral therapy and then look at the rectal therapy on top of that as well. So that's always the first line. And we're not really going to come to any harm. We're not going to put the patient at any risk, provided we've done our normal safety netting, um, if we do that in primary care. Brilliant. And how would you approach the initial management in Crohn's? What's your, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, again, Crohn's, I mean, lots of patients with Crohn's, again, can be very straightforward. Um, but the vast majority of patients with Crohn's tend to be a bit, more, a bit more complicated. You're more at risk of getting ulcers, ab uh, abscesses, strictures, all sorts of complicated disease with that as well. And again, because the disease tends to affect much more of the bowel, on, again, as a generalisation, um, the feeling from the British Gastroenterology is actually is that primary care shouldn't really get involved with those patients. Lots of them these days, they're on biologic medications, um, they're, they're, they're more complex. So unless the patient has a very clear written down documented care plan from secondary care on the whole we should always get advice from secondary care before we change or start or do something with, with the patients with Crohn's disease so that's the consensus that came that, that we came down to that the, the, the original flare pathways were we did try and sort things out and try and talk about ultrasounds and and things but I think life just became too complicated and and I think that those particular pathways just generally weren't used as much. We, we know that the, the osteoclitis colitis pathways, actually, lots of the IBD nurses, for example, were using those because they're endorsed by the um, by the BSG as well as other organisations. But the Crohn's disease ones generally weren't. So if it's Crohn's patients and they haven't got a care plan, get some advice. That's the, the take home message from that. Great. Thanks. Um, thanks, Kevin. So, so we talked there a bit about how we might sort of initiate treatment in, in a patient with ulcerative colitis, for example. Um, so sort of maximizing the treatments that they're on. I now want to move on to steroids. It's always a huge topic. I think it's a really important one. So can you tell us a bit more about steroid use in IBD flare? Yes, I mean, steroids absolutely have a place. Um, again, we need to make sure that they're used appropriately for the right patient at the right time. Um, the general rule of thumb is that, again, if the patient doesn't have their own care plan, is to, is to maximize the other therapies first of all. So the mesalazine, 5-SA drugs, those sorts of ones, make sure that they're doing those. Have a, have a plan in place to review that patient um, a couple of weeks after increasing it. The, the mesalazines and 5-SAs don't work as quickly as, as, as the steroids do. Um, so they can take a little bit longer to get a response. Um, so it's, but it's definitely worth having some kind of follow-up organized with the patients um, to let them know. 
if they don't respond, if they come back, um, then again, the steroids that, you know, we can prescribe them in, um, in primary care. But again, we need to go for a decent dose. And the general dose that's used by most IBD teams is, is to go for to go for 40 milligrams or 30 milligrams, start off at, at a decent level, um, but then to come down reasonably quickly. So typically reduced by five milligrams per, um, per week um, over that six to eight weeks, depending on what the starting dose. Um, again, they often work more quickly. They generally, you know, people tend to respond fair, fairly well to them. Um, and, and some patients really like them, prefer them because they get that quick response. Other people hate them because, again, they get the, the mood changes, sleep disturbances, appetite changes, um, you know, skin problems, all the problems that we get with short term use of, of, of steroids, as well as all the long term issues with suppressed immune system, uh, particularly an issue in COVID. And I'll talk about the, about the difference between prednisolone and bedestinide um, shortly. Um, as, as, as well as you know, yeah, osteoporosis and all those bits and pieces that, that, that go with, with oral steroids. So again, it's just being careful, actually just make sure you only use it when it's needed. Um, Budesonide became a lot more popular during COVID because it didn't have as much of a systemic um, immune suppression uh, as, as, as prednisolone did. Generally not quite as effective. Um, again, I you know, might get the drug manufacturers on my back about that, but the, the general consensus is that actually they're not quite as effective. However, in the right patient use at the right time, they can actually be released into the right bit of the gut and actually have more, much more of a localized effect. And you generally don't get as much of the systemic response um, and systemic effects. Again, varies from patient to patient with that as well. So we might see actually more and more budesonide used um, rather than prednisolone. Uh, so yeah, that's 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 a general theme. But again, I think if it comes to a stage where we where we are thinking about using prednisolone in a patient, we need to do, we absolutely need to let the IBD team know that we, we're thinking about doing it. And if we do end up doing it, we need to let them know as well because the general guidance is that a patient who has um, two or more courses of, of steroids within twelve months or flares or hasn't a relapse within a few weeks, six weeks of stopping, um, or can't get down below sort of around about the 10 milligram per day dose, um, then actually there's something else going on and does the other therapy need, need to be changed? Um, so we need to let or, or ask the patient to let their IVD team know that they've been given some steroids because when they go for their annual review, they've often forgotten they've had two, three, four flares during the year and they might say yeah, everything's fine and, and, and actually they don't kind of put the, the, the picture together. Thanks. That, that really helped because I was, I was going to ask you a bit about es escalating to secondary care, which you've done, which is brilliant. Um, I sometimes think of when I'm thinking of prednisolone and budesonide, I sometimes think of it as if prednisolone is the full fat Coke, budesonide is like the diet Coke. And I know that that's probably not a great analogy at all, but that's just how it sort of fits in my head uh, and fits with what you've been saying about, you know, less side, you know, systemic effects from, from budesonide. That's my very simple way of, of looking at things, the diet Coke of, uh, of steroids. Um, so, Kevin, could you tell us about any resources that GPs and primary care clinicians can draw on to help guide their decision making? You've already mentioned a couple already, but maybe you could tell us about where people might be able to find these. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, we, we are 
very, very good these days at actually accessing different bits of advice. Um, I think Corinthian Class UK have got some great resources for patients and for healthcare professionals on there as well. There's, there's an IBD nurse finder map. Um, if you search for IBD nurse Corinthian colitis, you'll, you'll find it. And it's an interactive map you can put in the postcode of where you are, and that will tell you the nearest um, IBD advice line um, service uh, on there as well, and the response times and how to contact them, whether it's by phone or email. Um, so that, that's the first thing to do if you're working as a locum or in a new area, or you just don't, you know, don't know where, don't know where the patient if the patient's under a different team perhaps that will give you their contact details um second thing uh is the rcgp ibd toolkit which has been revamped and and, and streamlined but um the flare pathways are on there and that's an easy url to remember it's just rcgp.org.uk slash ibd and that will redirect, redirect you to that one um there's also other bits and pieces for those who really want to kind of have a look at some uh more much more in-depth details then nice guidance is is always a place we might look at as well it's generally a little bit it's not quite as detailed as as, as the um bsg like um but for the real detail then then the bsg um did release in 2019 their ibd guidance unfortunately it got released just before COVID happened, so publicity and things wasn't as good as as, as we, we thought it should be, and they are going to just start in their cycle to revamp that as well. But the but the BSG IBD guidance, hundreds of pages, lots of resources on there. It talks about um, how to look after patients with osteoporosis risk, those and, and assessing patients. All those different bits are in there, and it did involve primary care, secondary care, IBD nurses, patients were involved in in, in that group as well as dietitians and surgeons and the whole thing. It's a real multidisciplinary bit of work. Um, so yeah, if you want to spend uh, uh, you know a good few hours reading that, then then search that up. It's on the published on the on the BMJ website. Brilliant, thanks, Kevin. To to finish off the episode, um, could you give us your key messages for GPs, key um, takeaways from this episode? Yeah, I think as always, we have to listen to the patient because you know they've lived with this disease as a chronic relapsing remission disease with no known cure. So you know that they're, they're the patients are often more experts in, in this than, than we are as healthcare professionals. Um, I think just double check the patient that they have got a care plan. Um, that's always the first thing they've got it. Follow it. You know, straightforward. Um, don't be afraid to seek advice. So if you've got IBD nurses um, around, you can speak to them. Um, and then finally, I think just to, just to think actually, is this actually an inflammatory flare or a functional flare? If it's a functional flare, then we manage them with lifestyle advice and diet changes and that side of things, which we should be doing every patient anyway. Um, and if it's an inflammatory flare, then um, then think actually maximize their current therapy, their non-steroid based therapy um, at the moment, and then, then get them back, review them, and then think about steroids um, as a second line uh, medication option. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Kevin. Um, really interesting to hear your thoughts around IBD. And it's been great to have you on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So thanks so much. Sorry, you're very welcome, Charlie. Thank you very much. Thank you.